Well, good morning. My name is Marcel Direct. I have the joy of serving as pastor of Faith Formation here at Gateway. And if you have your Bibles with you or your Bible app, can you please turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Our passage for this morning is Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. But do not worry, we're not going to read all three chapters this morning. Time doesn't permit to do that. Uh, But we are going to focus our attention on Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, and then we'll move to chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 33 to 36. When Pastor Justin, Pastor Adam, and I sit down to talk about who's going to be preaching, we look at our availability of who's able to preach, not so much the text on which we are going to preach. And if you have your Bibles open, you will notice that the heading for today is God's sovereign choice. When I read that, I kind of questioned our method of, of figuring out who's going to preach. Because that's a pretty heavy topic. And it's a topic that has caused uh, many fiery debates, perhaps even in your own home. It has caused churches to split, has caused families to be divided. You know, when that word of predestination comes up in a conversation, we all kind of sit up a little bit and we kind of wonder, where's that, kind of con- where's that conversation going to go? Why did God choose to predestine some to be saved and others not? Why did God choose me to be saved and not my neighbor next door, who frankly is probably a much better person than I am? These are the tough questions that we have to deal with when we talk about God's sovereign choice. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I have wrestled with this particular topic, and I continue to wrestle with this topic. And I think when we dig into God's word today a little bit more to address this, we may very well leave here today with more answers or more questions than we do answers. And I want to give just a quick word to our life group facilitators. If you lead one of our life groups here at Gateway, I want to encourage you that when you meet this week, as you gather for this topic, that you will take the 10, 15 minutes, whatever it takes to read chapter 9, 10, and 11 in its entirety before you begin your discussion. It'll be 10 minutes well spent as you lay the foundation for that discussion in your groups. Because I'm sure all of us that are in life groups, this whole topic of God's choosing, predestination, that whole topic is going to cause some pretty robust conversations and discussions within your groups. Difference of opinions are going to come in. But let's make sure that scripture is and that scripture remains the foundation of that discussion in your life groups. So with that said, let's turn to Romans chapter 9 together and let's read God's word. Romans chapter 9, 1 to 5 says this. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever be praised. Amen. And if you can turn to Romans chapter 11, we'll just read the last few verses of Romans chapter 11 which in my Bible says the doxology. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments 
and his paths beyond tracing. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Before you close your Bibles, I want you to take a quick look back at Romans chapter 8. Let's take a look at how Romans chapter 8 ends. Here's how it reads. It says, for all those who were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any power, nor the height, nor death, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Paul's listeners heard these words, I can only imagine that somebody would have shouted out, preach it, brother Paul, preach it. What a way to end, isn't it? And and we learned last week that, that all of that is in the context of suffering. But what a way to end a chapter. What a way to build up your brothers and sisters in the Lord, isn't it? Stand firm in the faith. Now turn to chapter 11. Flip over a few pages. Here's how it starts. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing will. See, the way that that Romans 8 ends and Romans 12 starts makes for a very logical connection to the word therefore. Because of Christ Jesus, you are more than conquerors. Therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That seems to make logical sense. But that's not where Paul goes in the book of Romans. He takes the longer road to express the sorrow and the anguish that he has in his heart for his own people. Those that have been adopted into the sonship of Christ, but those that are not living into that adoption. And Pastor Adam preached about that just a few weeks back. You know, it is so important that we read Romans 9 to 11 as one chapter, not as three. We need to read it in its entirety. If if we read them separately or as standalone chapters and not as a unit, we, we fail to see the sovereignty of God, our responsibility, and then our response to that. See, if all we do is, is read chapter 9. As a standalone, we fail to see our responsibility in God's choosing of my life. If all we do is read chapter 10, we're very quickly going to come to the conclusion that it all has to do with me. If I choose, salvation is up to me and my works. And sadly, so often, that is where the tension lies, doesn't it? Between chapter 9 and chapter 10. It is between those two chapters that churches have been divided and families have separated and tensions rise. And I believe that's why Paul took the long road. And he spent some time here focusing on this particular topic. He wants us to wrestle with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And sadly, I think we get so hung up on that tension that lies between those two chapters that we completely forget about the joy and the glory that comes in chapter 11. Thus, it's so important that we read all three together.
Because that tension that Paul feels is real. And Paul does not want us to sweep that tension of God's sovereign choosing and our responsibility under the carpet. He wants us to deal with it because it's real. At least I know it is in my heart. You know, maybe you've asked the question, if God chose me in advance, what choice do I really have? Or why did God choose me and perhaps not somebody else? And if God chose me and not that person who is a good person, honestly, is that truly fair of a loving God? If I have to make the choice to follow Christ, then isn't it really my decision? Isn't it up to me whether or not I am saved or not? How, how does God even decide in the first place who to choose and who not to choose? You know, even as I ask these questions, I feel in my own heart the tension is once again rising. I don't know if you feel that. Let me explain the tension this way. When I was nine years old, I played a practical joke on my parents. Youth, hopefully, maybe, you're going to appreciate the practical joke. Parents, you're probably going to experience a bit of the tension that perhaps my folks felt at the end of this whole thing. My parents, they had to make a quick trip to the garbage dump. They were gone. I think it was the garbage dump. It was about 20 minutes. I was nine years old, and they thought, you know, stay home alone, do your thing. We're going to be back soon. It was a very quick trip, and our place that we lived on was, down, was along a very long road, so if you turned the corner onto the road that we lived on, you could see our place very clearly. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if I would take my bike, lay on the side of the road with my bike on top of me? Classic joke, right? You're under, you can see where this is going. So I went ahead with my plan, because I thought this was pretty cool. I can do this, All right? So I found the right spot on the side of the road, and I faced the corner, because I thought, i got to see when they're coming, because I can't move. As soon as I start twitching or doing my thing, I thought, you know what? They're going to know I, this is a joke, right? So I had to lie perfectly still. So I lied there, put the bike on top of me. I could see the road, and there was the truck. It came around the corner. And I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going through with this now. No backing out, right? So the truck came. They saw me lying there. And I th I'm thinking they sped up. At least I hope they sped up if they saw their kid lying on the ground. Um, right? and, then, and then they came close. And I thought, don't move. Don't move. Oh, perfectly still. My truck comes up, right? My, my mom I'm a, comes out of the truck, you know, and she slams the door, runs up to me, all worried and wondering, what's going on? Is my son alive? Is he dead? What's happening? She comes up to me. She comes down. And boom! Dead or alive. I'm sure that you can feel the tension that my mother must have felt. Son lying on the ground, possibly dead. And in that moment, the tension. Do I act happy that my kid's alive? Or do I punish the little bugger? What do I do? The tension was real. You can ask my mom after church. Dead or alive? Happy or sad? Get mad or rejoice? What's it going to be? And that is the tension that we feel in our text today. Condemned to death are chosen for salvation. This is the tension that Paul is dealing with as he tries to bring clarity to understanding God's sovereign choice. And it could very well be the tension that you are feeling in your own heart as we talk about this particular topic. 
You know, when we read verses as Matthew 22, verse 14, where it says, many are called and, and few are chosen. Or we can look at the book of Ephesians where it says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. The tension continues to build. And with those verses, as you read in Matthew, as we look at Romans, as we look at many other passages in Scripture, more questions perhaps come to light about this topic. Have you ever asked the question? And here lies that tension. Why does God choose some and not others? Why does God choose some and not others? The answer to that is what Paul writes in chapter 9, verse 18, where Paul says this. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. But why? Have you ever wondered? But why? Because that really doesn't seem all that fair. And to be frankly honest with you, Paul, that ain't much of an answer, is it? But he goes on, and he shares a little bit more to this, and he says this, and I think we got to model this. He says, who are you, really? Mere humans to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the, some, uh, the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? You know what Paul's saying? He's saying this. I don't know. I I don't know why God chooses some and not others. But God does. God will do what God does. And it's not for us to question why just to believe in a holy God. See, I'm going to be the first to admit this morning that I am no greater theologian than the Apostle Paul, not even close. To be frankly honest with you, I'm not sure who is. And by no means am I thinking I am any smarter than the Apostle Paul to provide a more in-depth answer to this pressing question. Why does God choose some and not others? I don't know. I don't know. But we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with that and not jump to our own conclusions that are not found in God's word. It doesn't do any of us any good to jump to speculations and start guessing as to why God does what he does. Because it's in those speculations, it's in those moments that doubt begins to creep in. That division arises. We need to trust God completely for his sovereign choosing. It's just that plain and simple. But to be honest with you, I know what it is for me. That is a whole lot easier said than done. In looking at this topic, it may be wise for us to stop the speculation and to stop proof texting our opinions on the matter and have the childlike faith to believe in God's sovereign plan and allow Paul's answer to his readers be enough. I don't know. 
And instead of developing our own opinions on the matter, we need to read Romans 9 to 11 again, perhaps with a new, uh, with a fresh set of eyes and allow Scripture to speak to our hearts because I think Paul is leading us to a much deeper question. And that question is this. What needs to be my response to my adoption? What needs to be my response to being chosen by God? So instead of trying to figure out something that even Paul could not figure out, let's take a look and learn at what our response needs to be to the fact that we are actually adopted or chosen by God. For such a time as this, for the here and for the now. Romans 9 to 11 gives us Five different responses on how we need to move forward knowing and living in to this reality of our adoption or being chosen by God. The first one is this. We are chosen to be in awe of God's mercy. We are chosen to be in awe of God's mercy. Take a look again if you still have your Bibles open. to Romans chapter 12. It says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... The therefore is there because of Romans, not because of Romans 8. It is there because of Romans 9 through 11. You are a chosen people in view of God's mercy. The in view of God's mercy is there because of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And man, what a mercy it is. God's mercy is that he would have chosen any of us at all in the first place. We are all sinful people and in desperate need of a Savior. And our natural tendency is to hate God and to go against Him. All throughout Scripture we see it again and again. God's people stepping back from God. And God so graciously bringing them back. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Where you have stepped back from God. And God in His mercy brings you forward back into relationship with Him. That is mercy. If God would condemn us all to hell... He would be so just in doing so. We could not fault him for that. But in his mercy, he provided a whole new way for us. The good news is the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived a life that you and I could never live, obeying God completely. Then he died a death that you and I should have died. And he rose conquering the enemy that you and I could never have conquered. And now through Jesus Christ, by faith in him, We now have a right standing with God. Our choosing is 100% God, not on our own works. Salvation by works, it's a dead end road. Salvation by the faith in Jesus Christ leads to a road of life and glory. Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way he says, I believe in the doctrine of election. Because, I'm not quite sh- I'm, because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterward. That is the unfathomable mercy of a loving God to his chosen people. Never, ever stop being in awe of God. Never let the speculation of God's sovereign choosing extinguish the awe towards a holy and mighty God. Let's not stop being in awe of God. Secondly, 
We need to allow God's sovereignty to increase our faith. We need to allow God's sovereignty to increase our faith. You know, for many people, and maybe you are one of these people, we need to have all the answers to the faith, don't we? Before we're going to believe completely. We don't like the mystery. We need to have our faith cut and dry, put in a box with a nice bow on it. No mysteries, no loose ends. I believe that Paul is telling us to do something different today. I believe that Paul is telling us to run in the opposite direction. May the mystery of our may the mystery of God's sovereignty not decrease our faith, but may it increase our faith in God hugely. Who are we to grasp the mind of God? You? I certainly am not. Hear these words from the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know, I may not have all the answers about God and how he works, but man, am I glad and am I grateful that he does. Knowing that God is in control, knowing that his plan for my life is to mold and to shape me in the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Knowing that the God who breathed life into his son, Jesus Christ, to raise him from the dead. Knowing that that God is in control. Wow. Just think about that for a moment. When your mind goes to the mystery of the faith, don't let it decrease your faith, but allow your mind to be blown by the majesty of a holy and sovereign God. May you always be in awe of the mystery of God, and may it spur you on to dig deeper into his word and into prayer every day starting today. And third... We need to embrace the mystery of God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. Romans chapter 9 talks about God's sovereign choosing and it's not for us to question God's sovereign choosing. Chapter 10 talks about our response to this choosing in my life. Chapter 10 verse 9 says this, If, if you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the delicate dance, isn't it? Right there. We need to acknowledge that God is 100% in control, and we need to be accountable to him. God chose us before the beginning of time, and our accountability is to affirm his choosing by declaring with our mouth, that Jesus Christ is Lord forever and ever. And as soon as we tip the scale to one end, that we begin to think that our salvation has anything to do with us, we deny the reality of Jesus Christ. If we tip the scale too far the other way, we release our, ourselves from the responsibility of God's calling in our life. We need to affirm his calling and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Theologian Doug Moe puts it this way. 
divine sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation stand in some tension. But they are not logically contradictory. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, they are most definitely friends. Romans 9.16 says this, it does not therefore depend on human desires or efforts, but on God's mercy. That's the balance. That's the dance. And fourth, may God's sovereign choosing give us a, a burning passion for the lost. Take a look at Romans 10, 14 and 15. It says this. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then in verse 17 it says, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Looking back again at our passage today, oh may I encourage you to read all three chapters when you get home as a whole. Because Paul shows the heart of a faithful messenger of the good news of Jesus Christ. Then he then goes on to explain that God's sovereignty is what needs to drive that messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 9 starts out with Paul as he shares his heart for the lost. He says he has great sorrow and great anguish in his heart for those that are not following Jesus Christ. You know, what I find interesting about all of this is before that Paul jumps into the sovereignty of God and his choosing, he first starts out by talking about his anguish and his sorrow for the lost. God has chosen, but until people hear the message of salvation, they are unable to affirm what God has already done in their life. You are chosen to be the messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the good news is not proclaimed by you or myself, how, how will the lost hear? And if no one hears, how will they believe in the gospel? And if they don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how are they going to proclaim with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? As you can see, messengers are essential. You, you are essential to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. This is not a job that's left up to the preachers and the theologians of the world. It's left to you and it's left to me to share the good news of Jesus Christ. For you see, the good news is only good news to the lost if it gets there on time. We are called for action today and moving forward. Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Friends, we stand in awe of a God who has shown us tremendous mercy. When we allow God's sovereignty to increase our faith, when we embrace the mystery of God's choosing and our human responsibility, when we, when we celebrate the dance that takes place there, when we rekindle the burning passion in our heart for the lost, it is then and only then that the tension that we talked about earlier decreases and our amazement of a holy God increases.
Because it's then that Paul so wonderfully brings us into chapter 11. Our final response of being saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ. See, chapter 11 brings us out of the heavenly mystery of God's sovereign choosing. And he draws our attention to the king of kings. Paul draws our attention to the future. So finally, the mystery of God's sovereignty should draw us into deeper worship. In the end, Paul explains the infinite wisdom and matchless mercy. He, when he does, he bows before the throne of God, the King of kings, in worship. Because you see, good theology, it should bring us into heartfelt worship. If all we do is start questioning what we don't know about God, if we constantly bring our attention to what is not written in God's word, that's the moment when the devil begins to ask the same question he did in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that? Is that really what God meant? And that's when the doubt creeps in. That's when suspicion creeps in. That's where division begins to divide the body of Christ. But when we stand in awe of God, when, when we keep our mind focused on his attributes, his sovereignty, his glory, his mercy, his grace, his peace, his forgiveness, then we should be right next to Paul on bended knee, worshiping a holy and sovereign God. That needs to be where we stand. Apostle Paul goes through chapter 9, chapter 10. And he deals with the tough issues of life, the questions that we have. Chapter 11, he falls on his knees in honor and worship of a holy God. And he ends chapter 11 with the doxology. He doesn't settle in the mystery. He enjoys and he revels in the mystery of it all. And he ends chapter 11 this way. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What more can we say in addition to these powerful words that Paul uses to close these three chapters? Nothing. Nothing. So to God be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you for your word this morning that allows us to wrestle with some of the tougher things and the questions that we have in life. God, we pray that in our wrestling through it all, in the, in the continued questions that we are going to have in regards to this topic, we pray that we will be able to settle on the whole concept that perhaps this is just something that our minds will not be able to grasp or fathom this side of heaven. 
and that we will be able to comfortably sit there, God, knowing that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you are Lord of all. And God, may we enjoy the fact that you are in control. May it burn in us a passion and a desire to seek you more. May we be in awe of your majesty and your mercy and your grace in our lives. May it drive us to witness and to share the good news with those whom we work with, those we work with, those in our community, those in our home and our family. God, may we never cease to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for all things because you are God and you are Lord over all. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, before we sing our doxology,